0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Escape Maker, hosting the Women in Food and Farming Festival on May 8th and 9th.
2: Learn more at womennourish.com. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality. Subscribe for free at youtube.com slash lab
3: Flavor incorporates all of our sensory modalities. So it's not just taste and smell, but also what something looks like. Uh, color, right, plays a big role in how we interpret what we experience, uh, texture, the sensations inside our mouth, tannicness, heat, that are carried by the trigeminal nerve. Even hearing plays a role in how we experience what we eat. Both the ambient sounds in the room, there've been experiments that show that bass soundtrack brings out bitter notes, so it makes an IPA taste more bitter. But the crunch of a potato chip, uh, for instance, also affects our sort of total experience of it.
4: That was food historian Dr. Nadia Berenstein reminding us that taste is just one element of the vibrant sensory palette of flavor. You'll hear more from her soon. Sometimes we take for granted that foods will look and feel like we expect them to. So it's especially disorienting when food doesn't give us our anticipated sensory experience. Think of how jarring it is to take a sip of warm, fragrant coffee, only to realize that you've put in a spoonful of salt instead of sugar. Or imagine your surprise at biting into a rosy apple and being met with a mouthful of pear instead. This week, we're looking at food that is not what it seems. We're peeling back the layers of texture, taste, and technique that help some foods imitate others. First, we'll savor the layered and whimsical field of artificial fruit flavoring. Then we watch as food deceives in the sinister world of olive oil fraud. And when food duplicates, like when being stamped out of a 3D printer. Finally, we'll consider some of the ethical choices facing the emerging meat substitute industry, which risks reproducing some of the same inequalities as quote-unquote real meat production. I'm Kat Johnson, and this is Meat and Three.
0: Meat and Three.
4: Meat
2: and Three. Meat and Three. One meat, three sides.
5: Food, news, and storytelling.
2: A square meal for your ears. Meat and Three.
4: We don't always want to experience the full, unadulterated flavor of what we're consuming. For our first segment, Anna Oaks dips into the history of artificial flavoring. And she speaks with one manufacturer who's designing flavors to complement the taste of a popular but pungent plant. Late
6: last month, New York state lawmakers voted to legalize recreational marijuana. The move opens the door for growers, sellers, and interestingly, artificial flavorists. As the $13.6 billion U.S. cannabis industry expands to new markets, producers are looking for ways to smooth over the distinct taste of cannabis in edibles and vape products. The goal is to make cannabis more accessible to customers who may want the experience without the flavor.
7: What we do is carefully design flavors, which we have 26 flavors now, and we're building more every week, um, that are designed to overcome that disgusting bitter taste uh, so that the mind doesn't capture it. Um, So we kind of manufactured loud flavors, uh, flavors that uh, would grab repeat customers.
6: Joshua Kobos is the chief operating officer for Dolce Foglia, a family-run flavor manufacturing company in California. They work with an in-house master flavorist to design flavors that complement and enhance cannabis-based products.
7: One thing about bitterness is that bitterness will never go away and it'll always be there. So you have to kind of attack the palate in a way that it doesn't notice it and it's distracted. So we have a pineapple habanero flavor that is sweet and spicy and it's really good in gummies and it's really good in in hard candies. That's one of our most popular flavors. And what that does is that you first, on the the tip of your tongue, get that sweet pineapple uh, hit and then it ends with a little bit of spice.
6: Building flavors is a complex process. Each of the flavors for Dolce Foglia, for instance, consists of a closely guarded combination of 20 to 30 ingredients. And it's not so easy to pinpoint what exactly a specific artificial flavor is supposed to taste
7: like. This is how my flavorista told me. He said that there is, you know, 100 million different ways to make the flavor strawberry. And it really comes down to the area you're in, the geographic area that, that consumes the strawberry, and what those flavor profiles look like for them. So the flavor profile for a strawberry in uh, Japan or China will be completely different from what we have here in the States.
6: Taste preferences are also relative. Strawberry banana is classic and always popular, but Dolce Foglia's chief flavorist, Ed Vanderloo, has also ventured down the savory route.
7: And one thing the other day is he called me and he's like, hey, is anybody asking for salad dressing with THC? And I was like, "No no one's asking that, Ed.
6: Consumers expect novel and ever-evolving flavor combinations and choices, though maybe not yet salad dressing. And companies are eager to meet and foster those expectations.
3: You have to kind of pause a bit to think about exactly how strange and unusual that is in human history to always be confronted with new flavor opportunities, with new kinds of flavors to taste. The industry is always trying to serve And also create this um, consumer palette that's looking for more, that's looking for novelty, that's looking for things that claim to be authentic or maybe exotic.
6: That's Dr. Nadia Berenstein, a flavor historian. She points out that our appetites for new and artificial flavoring have grown alongside American consumer culture. Artificial flavoring adds an exciting, tantalizing element to the consumer experience, which brings more business back to manufacturers humans have been adding spices to our food for millennia. But the use of artificial flavoring stems back to the industrialization of the food system in the 19th century. That's also when sugar, previously a luxury product, began to be produced on a mass scale, aided by the mechanization of the sugar refining process. With all that cheaply produced sugar, manufacturers looked for new ways to encourage consumption.
3: But in order to... Take sugar from a kind of commodity to a consumer product. You have to create this differentiation. So artificial flavors are this product that starts appearing that allows for not just sweet drops, but sweet like lozenges of all kinds of flavors to appear of all kinds of varieties. By
6: adding artificial flavoring to sugar, producers opened up a whole new menu of product options from candies to soda. Maybe that helps explain the push in the cannabis industry and dolci foglia towards new forms and flavors. Legalization has enabled the growth of that industry, just as mechanization did with sugar.
7: Yeah, we, we actually have some coffee flavors, some espresso flavors. We have um, cocktail flavors, so like an Irish cream. Um, he's working on a Bloody Mary, which I don't know if I'm, I'm going to like, but I, I assume some people, you know, it's, it's a niche business sometimes, right? So you want to have that availability. He has a, a cognac flavor that he's made, and it tastes, you know, literally smells and tastes just like cognac. And, and if you put it in a hard candy, you think that you're consuming alcohol.
6: Artificial flavors weren't always designed to imitate or reproduce existing flavor profiles like cognac. The earliest artificial flavors actually stemmed from coincidences in chemistry labs.
3: They didn't come around because chemists were analyzing, you know, an apple, a pear, a pineapple, a banana, and trying to figure out what molecule in it made it smell like an apple and not like a strawberry. It came about because of chance encounters in chemistry labs, chance observations that something smelled apple-like or pineapple-esque. You can still
6: taste some of those early flavors if you know where to look.
3: Think about the very cheapest and most common sugar candies, right? The kinds of hard candies that you find in a bowl, in a fish bowl at uh, the front desk of a doctor's office or in like a hotel waiting room, right? These kinds of anonymous candies that ostensibly, you, you can tell what flavor they are by the color that they are essentially. I sometimes think of those as heirloom flavors, because in many cases, the same molecules that were being used in the late 19th, early 20th century as the kind of backbones of apple flavor or strawberry flavor or grape flavor are still being used as the backbone of these kinds of cheap kind of candies and sometimes fancier kinds of candies as well. Consumer
6: tastes have also undergone a shift in recent years. People are veering away from words like artificial and seeking out naturally sourced or labeled food. But maybe this whole distinction between what's artificial and what's authentic is misdirected.
3: In both cases, these additives are heavily dependent on the kind of advanced technology and scientific research that purifies them, that makes them safe, that makes them available at a consistent price. So both natural and artificial flavors are standard elements of of the industrialized technological food system that we live with now. I don't think that the distinction between artificial and natural flavors is a useless distinction, but I don't think that it's as meaningful as we tend to reflexively believe that it is. And I think that there are much better ways, you know, of measuring the quality of of thinking about the quality of the food that we eat and its impact on the world.
6: That's the irony of the growing cannabis industry, too. Part of marijuana's appeal is its reputation as an all-natural plant substance, but consumers are hungry for ever-evolving artificial flavors, and in particular for flavors that distract from the actual taste of marijuana. Or vice versa, perhaps in the not-too-distant future, we can look forward to washing down a spiced reefer pie with a nice, bud-flavored milkshake. Though that probably exists already.
4: Don't judge a book by its cover. That idiom speaks to art, people, and products. When it comes to food, a label can claim quality and authenticity, whether or not it deserves the designation. When grocery labels boast titles like Italian-made or traditional, regardless of their origin, many consumers reach for the cheapest option, leaving real Italian producers high and dry. Linda Palaccio, culinary historian and host of A Taste of the Past on HRN, met with Beatrice Ughi, founder of the Bronx-based Italian specialty food importer Gustiamo, to discuss the issue of imitation.
8: You can label anything on a bottle of olive oil. You you can put any name, any uh, or on a tomato or on a bag of pasta, and they will pass as long as the label <laughs> uh, includes uh, a, a cute map of Italy or, or the picture of a of an old uh, uh, woman uh, picking the olives. Uh, then it becomes already an Italian name, an Italian sounding name. Is more attractive on the shelves of the supermarkets.
4: How many shoppers care that their spaghetti comes in honest packaging? As long as it tastes good and looks pretty in the pantry, what's the harm? Well, the cost of fraudulent labels and imitation San Marzano cans falls on the shoulders of farmers and purveyors like Beatrice. Faux imports offer extremely competitive prices, driving shoppers away from authentic Italian products which remain firmly up market due to artisanal production costs and international tariffs
8: food uh, has to have a a price if uh, it does not have a price it might not be so healthy for you or healthy for the planet and um, it's it's an agricultural food it, it's the result of an agricultural process and uh, and uh, it needs to be respected and uh, have the good va- a good value to, to, to sustain the farmers uh, who make it. And my, my nightmare is that by abandoning all these uh, uh, olive oil groves, uh, uh, the, the, our country will be, become a, Martian, a land like Mars. You know, without uh, with our beautiful landscape and uh, mm-hmm. diversity, because people can't afford to continue to grow their olive trees, uh, mm-hmm. because they can't afford to have a really good living.
4: For this full story, check out episode 362 of A Taste of the Past in the show notes. We'll be right back with more Meet and Three after a brief break.
1: This episode is brought to you by Escapemaker, hosting the Women in Food and Farming Festival. This Mother's Day weekend, May 8th and 9th, EscapeMaker.com will present the first annual Women in Food and Farming Festival at Stone Ridge Orchard in New York's Hudson Valley. That's just two hours outside of New York City and Ulster County. The two-day hybrid live and virtual event, open to the public, will honor and celebrate women-owned businesses in the food, farm, and craft beverage spaces, and provide entrepreneur resources. A live farmer's market on May 8th will host dozens of women farmers and craft beverage and food producers, with products ranging from cakes and cookies to fresh veggies and honey to hot sauces and teas all locally sourced and produced for those not able to attend in person there will be a virtual experience on may 9th it will include 25 online tours demos and educational presentations on various topics
2: on demand for the public and trade learn more at womennourish.com This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a new video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality. In the first episode, three chemists swap cookie recipes, and once they finish baking, they ship them back to the recipe's owner. Along the way, they share insightful information on how chemistry can help you become a better baker. Watch the first episode and subscribe to the series for free at youtube.com slash lab X-N-A-S.
4: Welcome back to Meat in 3. For our next story, Armin Spingen introduces us to Behex, a company that builds 3D printing machines that can make food.
9: Picture this. It's 2041, you're late for work, and you don't have time to cook breakfast. No problem, just switch on your 3D printer... And out comes a bacon, egg, and cheese, complete with a to-go wrapper. That may sound like science fiction, but Ben Feltner, COO and co-founder of b a 3D food printing company, says it's not as far off as one might think. So
5: if I were to make a plate with some spaghetti on it and a cup with coffee in it, we could do that with one of our machines where we would be printing the plastic plate and then depositing the pasta, and then depositing the sauce, and then print the cup, and then you're just dispensing coffee.
9: But printing a whole meal, utensils and all, has its
5: drawbacks. It would take a long time. I mean, it would probably take an hour. But if we can make that an instantaneous thing somehow, then it would be the replicator that everyone thinks about as like the ultimate goal.
9: The replicator Ben is referring to is a reference to a gadget from Star Trek.
5: It's just like a little platform where you can say, uh, I want, I don't know, I want a catfish dinner with potatoes. And
9: it just goes, and like appears. b might not be working on any real-life Star Trek gadgets just yet, but they did get their start by trying to figure out how to feed astronauts. CEO and co-founder Anjan Contractor was developing machines that could 3D-print food for a NASA research project.
5: We thought it was a crazy idea, there's no way they're going to go for it, but um, they did, so we got started developing a machine that can personalize meals and nutrition on, like, the
9: mission to Mars or any deep space mission or on the space station. It may be a little while before we actually send folks to Mars, so the duo started building pizza-making machines that can be used today. As you may have guessed, 3D printing food is trickier than printing other more common materials.
5: Even like the most consistent icing or dough or something like that, it's different. The yeast is different. It was in a different environment. The temperature has an influence on it. And does it expand when you deposit it? And uh and all that stuff. So, since you're dealing with food, then you have to be very sensitive to so many different things that are always
9: changing. Still, understanding the basics of how food is 3D printed isn't rocket science. Almost anything that can be pulverized and fed into a 3D printer and then deposited into a shape that is ready to be cooked is fair game. Some machines can actually cook the food during or after the print. But other 3D printed treats may need to be transferred to a conventional oven... Or another cooking device.
5: It's actually, in its simplest form, it is so common sense. And when you see it, you're like, oh, geez, I didn't know
9: it was that simple. The main draw of this technology comes down to the time and money these machines will save. That can replace the need for having
5: people just doing the same thing over and over again. I mean, it's a classic automation problem. They're better off controlling the equipment and getting higher throughput that way so that the products end up costing less. With time and
9: money freed up, there's room for innovation.
5: So it can go beyond just let's 3D print whatever it is, a pizza or heart tissue or a steak or something like that. It's let's create a personalized nutrition bar or a personalized meal with the exact micronutrients that you request or that are recommended based on your DNA data, you know, down to some really specific parameters.
9: Right now, the field of 3D printing is exploratory. Whether we end up using these machines to feed astronauts or in our kitchens for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, only time will tell. But through innovation, possibilities emerge and a clearer picture of the future takes shape.
5: I think everyone should at some point in their week, probably. Think about what's the world going to be like in 10 or 30 years.
9: To learn more about the different projects happening at BX, check out the show notes.
4: In recent years, a growing array of meat alternatives have popped up everywhere from artisanal grocery stores to Burger Kings. Impossible Meat and Beyond Burger, two of the most popular meat substitutes, resemble beef in their texture and taste, and they're made up of soy and pea protein. Some food scientists have their sights set on creating something even closer to animal protein. From Episode 7 of HRN's Fields, we bring you highlights from a discussion on the emerging field of cellular agriculture, or lab-grown meat.
10: The basic idea is to culture cells from living animals um, and using the same kind of science we've seen in tissue engineering for medical purposes, but applying that to food production. So basically you culture the cell. In a bioreactor, it grows, and then ultimately, at the end, you come out with a piece of meat, even as the animal that it was cultured from has been, you know, not harmed in any way, right?
4: That's Garrett Broad, a vegan academic and professor whose research focuses on food systems, food justice, and animal welfare. Though there aren't any cell-based meats on the market yet, scientists are working hard to turn this dream into a reality. A lot of these meat substitutes have been touted as a kind of revolutionary, green alternative to traditional animal agriculture. But many people, both within and outside the industry, are skeptical of these narratives. Here's Mira Zassenhaus, the communications and media manager at New Harvest,
11: a nonprofit which funds cellular agriculture research. It's a really cool thing. It's like science fiction. It's like space. Um, and there's this whole whimsy to it that I think very much drives like the public's interest in these headlines, drives people's individual interest in pursuing this, that's so much less sober and grim than like, this is how we're going to like solve climate change, because I don't think this is how we solve climate change. That needs to be solved a lot faster. Instead of seeing
4: cell-based meat as a potential solution to climate change, she finds a different kind of hope in what this emerging field might become. She sees opportunity for this new industry to avoid recreating the same structures of inequality
11: that plague the corporate animal ag industry. Big meat companies, I mean, I think people like to paint them as these like evil behemoths that are like trying to take down this nascent industry, but That's not really the case. They're trying to kind of co-opt it for themselves, invest money in it. I personally would be really disappointed if in this creation of a new way of growing food, we just replicated um, the consolidation and the like corporatization of meat that we've been dealing with for so long. Because this is, I think, a truly unique opportunity to really like start fresh. Garrett seems to agree.
10: I would certainly argue that simply producing more meat this way without other changes to our sociological structures um, you know to the the broader political economy of society and, and you know that we're going to run into a lot of the same problems and so something I've really been advocating for strongly is getting these kinds of conversations about equity and justice into this landscape where I, I think So much is focused on sort of the positive promises of these technologies, just like, you know, with GMOs. There hasn't been enough of an honest conversation about what don't these technologies do? Um, How could these technologies be sort of incorporated into existing existing cultures in ways that's more collaborative and more participatory and makes it more likely that it'll actually have the positive impacts?
4: To learn more about cell-based meat, check out episode seven of Fields. Special thanks this week to Anna Oaks, Cameron Berger, Armin Spingen, and Sasha Cohen. Meet in 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Kat Johnson. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet N3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet N3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. You can also email us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out.